This conference will now be recorded. Hello, and welcome to The Babbling Professor. In this episode, we're going to discuss World War I, otherwise known as the Great War. First of all, I want to take a step back and just look at these questions of, um, of how to study a war, any war. Um, I think the basic questions that we should cover would be, why did the war happen? Who was involved? What was the specific catalyst? What significant events happened during the war? How was the war fought? Meaning like technologies and new inventions and new weapons. How did the war come to an end? And what were the results of the war? So that's just a, a rubric sheet that, that I, I like to use when looking at any war. In this specific war, the Great War, which we now call World War I, there are a host of, of issues in the background, building really since um, the age of Napoleon and the French Revolution, um, especially, I think, 1848 and, um, and then the rise of, of um, Germany in particular, but also of Italy. So within that context, there was this realignment uh, of balance of power in a, in a continent that had been divided essentially between uh, the Brits and the French. Now with this rise of, of Germany and um, newfound uh, aggression, um, pan-Slavism of the Russians, as well as the power vacuums with the decay of the sick man of Europe and the Austro-Hungarian empires, all of that going on, uh, there was this realignment, right? And now England and France found it better to be allies than adversaries. And that happened really just a, a decade or so before the war. This, uh, this concept of an of an alliance, right? It, it goes back to the ancient Greeks and, and beyond. Uh, the ancient Greeks had the Delian League uh, led by Athens, the Peloponnesian League led by Sparta. This idea that city-states or nation-states uh, would assist each other. The most important rule in an alliance is the concept of mutual defense. That is that if one member of an alliance is attacked, it's an attack on all members of the alliance. Uh, there, there are also economic alliances in history, the Hanseatic League, um, the Trades Custom uh, Union in, uh, in 19th century Germany, eventually the EU and NAFTA, you know, WTO, those are, all, those are all economic alliances. There's also military alliances. Uh, it, during the Cold War, essentially, it was NATO versus the Warsaw Pact. The Warsaw Pact has, has been dissolved, but NATO still exists. So there's this idea of alliances. And again, the important point here is mutual defense, mandated mutual defense in, in a way. So in the alliance system, as it developed in, in the days before World War One, essentially the the British and the, and the French, they called their new understanding of each other the entente, uh, en français, understanding. And then as the Triple Alliance or the Central Powers started to, to form their own group, uh, the British and the French felt it necessary to let Russia in as a way to uh, geopolitically surround the leader of the Central Powers, um, the, uh, the German Empire. So the, the Triple Entente, Britain, France, Russia, notice it's Britain and France, uh, mostly democracies, you know, 
Britain being a constitutional monarchy, France at this point being the third republic, I believe. And, and then this um, outlier, this autocratic uh, Russia. In terms of the Triple Alliance or the Central Powers, all of them were authoritarian regimes. The, the German Empire, uh, the, Russian em the Russian Empire, the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Turkish Empire. So if you're, if you're following along on the YouTube channel, you can see a picture right now, and you can see the red nations literally surrounding um, the Triple Entente. Uh, and the Central Powers, or the Triple Alliance, you know, they, they do have some um, cohesion. They, they are all congruent to each other, essentially. Um, but as we're going to talk about, if, if you're still following along on the YouTube channel instead of the, the podcast, you'll notice that uh, how Romania and Serbia cut into the, um, the contiguousness of the central powers. So in particular, let's talk about Serbia. Serbians are a Slavic people like many and most people in Eastern Europe. Serbians um, use the Cyrillic in this time period. They use the Cyrillic um, alphabet. They are Orthodox. And so in, in many ways, they identify with or can be seen to, to be organized with uh, Russia. And Russia wanted Serbia to be in their sphere infants. They wanted Russia, uh, Russia wanted Serbia to be their, their little pet project. And so this, this uh, Slavic, Orthodox, Cyrillic, nation state within the Austro-Hungarian Empire, wedged between the Ottoman and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, seeking its own identity and nationalism becomes, becomes uh, the tipping point. When the, when the war begins, um, it, it's the reason it's called the World War is because yes, there were operations um, in different parts of the world, different theaters, uh, but really almost every nation state in the world was involved either as a combatant or a, an allied supplier. And, and so there, there are few neutral states. Um, I think uh, Scandinavia, Mexico, Dominican Republic, um, most of South America with the exception of Brazil, Ethiopia, Iran, and the Dutch, and therefore the Dutch uh, in East Indies, right? Like those are the only neutral states, basically, uh, Spain and Mon uh, Morocco. Everybody else is involved one way or another. The Ottoman Empire, remember, uh, used to be this massive... Um, triple continent super superpower in terms of land and influence uh, it, it was uh, the symbol of islam in fact uh, they kept they continued to use the word uh, uh, caliph and and even the flag of the ottoman empire is now considered to be the religious symbol of the religion of islam uh, the crescent moon and star but at, at its peak the ottoman empire was all over north africa all over the arab peninsula all over the Balkan Peninsula, all over the Holy Land and uh, Anatolia, what, what we would call Turkey today. And over the period of time as, as uh, the Brits and the French are, um, are scrambling for Africa, as well as the other uh, nations of Europe, the Ottoman Empire was pushed out of North Africa. Algeria became France, Libya became Italian, Egypt became British. Um, Sudan became British uh, and, and so forth. And there's this crunch. And then as uh, the Russians and the 
um, and and the Austro-Hungarians um, are are pushing back into the Balkan Peninsula. Uh, the Ottoman Empire kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I'm going to leave that now as it is, but it, it, we're going to come back to that that concept. But let's now look at some of these political leaders that uh, were the the dominant players in their nation states. Among the allied triple entente, the heads of state were George V of Britain, Nicholas II of Russia, uh, the president uh, Ponacari of France, and even Victor Emmanuel II of Italy. The And these people, remember, they're all first cousins, essentially, with uh, their grandmother being uh, Queen Victoria, the grandmother of Europe. On the other side, the central powers, the Triple Entente, they, well, at least Wilhelm, he was also a grandson of Victoria. The heads of state among the central powers were Wilhelm II of Germany, um, the three Pashas of the Ottoman Empire uh, after they deposed the emperor at, towards the end of the war. But even before that happened, um, uh, Enver Pasha was really one of the dominant um, people within the government. And of course, um, Emperor Franz Joseph of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. If, if you want to flush that out even more, um, on the left side of this chart are the, are the Triple Entente allied powers. At the top are the, the political leaders and at the bottom are the military leaders. On the other side, on the right, the central powers that have at the top, it has their heads of state and at the bottom, their military leaders. I bolded a few of them. Nicholas II of Russia is pretty important. Woodrow Wilson of USA is important. Um, Churchill is important for the the botched attempt to uh, to um, assault Gallipoli. Um, Marshal Patton uh, is important in French history. John Pershing in American history, uh, and then Paul von Hindenburg and this little corporal named Adolf Hitler or something uh, from Germany. So let's go back and talk about Russia and their situation. They were the outlier, as I said, in the alliance um, of the, uh, because the other two were more democratic and Western European, and here you have this Eastern European autocratic state that has a lot of social stresses because of the, its abolition of, of I, I just call it slavery, but they called it serfdom. Um, the, the frustrations, um, conscious and unconscious, uh, of a lack of an industrial revolution while the rest of Europe is industrializing, and, and the Romanov dynasty's refusal to allow for a relaxation and authoritarianism at the same time that the Romanovs are using um, nationalism, specifically pan-Slavism, to, to buttress their own interests in the Crimean Peninsula and, and in the Balkan Peninsula. And then, of course, we'll talk about this in a bit, but there's this crazy guy named Vladimir Lenin in this thing I like to call the Russian Revolution. The Tsar, uh, when the war started, his personal participation, he went out to the front lines, his personal Participation actually uh, exasperated the problem because it allowed Rasputin, the the itinerant monk, to worm his way into the royal family. Lenin was this dissident. He was a Marxist. Uh, he tried to, or he did participate. The 1905 Russian Revolution was exiled um, and and lived in Western Europe all the way up until the October revolutions of 1917. And we'll talk about that when we get to that point of the story. And you got the Kaiser, you got the President of the United States. These are just an introduction to some of the names and, and faces. 
the next concept I want to talk about is is militarism and and the arms race. So, uh, yeah, if if you have a weapon, you're going to use it, right? The the French military budget, ten percent of um uh, of its uh, GDP. British defense budget, thirteen percent of its GDP. All right. Russian expenditures, thirty nine percent. They didn't even have the weapons to show from it and for it. That's incredible. Germany, seventy three percent increase in defense expenditures uh, in the period leading up to World War One. So actually, I should I should revise what I said earlier. It's not GDP. It's it's percentage of in increase. All I know is those numbers are big. Um, I, I believe I subscribe to the argument that all wars are economic. People uh, say they're political. Lots of people pretend that they're religious, but at the end of the day, they're economic. And the fact of the matter is uh, Britain and France did not want Germany to work its way in because um, economics is zero sum, right? They didn't want a rise in Germany um, and German um, growth in uh, whether it be sub-Saharan Africa or in the Pacific Islands and so forth. Uh, a rising economic Germany is a threat to the hegemony of Britain and France. Um, and, and so nationalism had become increasingly aggressive or, or jingoistic. Um, and all of this led to um, the powder keg of Europe. And as I said, Serbia is the heart of that. Serbia, Slavic state, wants its autonomy, um, demands its autonomy from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Russia continues to encourage Serbian nationalism to the point where the Austro-Hungarians are like, hey, you know, we better go down and calm the situation down. So the emperor sends his heir, uh, Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke, to do a, a goodwill tour of Sarajevo, which at that point was in Serbia. Uh, nowadays, it's, it's in Bosnia, Herzegovina. And when he went down on this goodwill visit, he was assassinated. He was assassinated by a man named Gavriel Princip, not even a man, a kid, who was already dying of tuberculosis. So he figured he didn't have anything to lose. He was part of a, a terrorist organization known as the Black Hand. Um, and they set up this um, ambush where they were going to kill the Archduke. Well, the, the Archduke's driver um, hit, uh, it went, went to the, to the, um, the uh, kill zone, went, drove through the kill zone before Gabriel Princip was in, in place. Amazingly, the chauffeur, not in on the assassination at all, got lost, turned around, went by Gabriel Princip again, bang. Prince uh, Princip shot Ferdinand in the neck and the Archduchess, the wife, uh, in the abdomen. Um, when he turned the gun on himself to kill himself, he was restrained by policemen um, and apprehended. The Archduke was dead. Could you imagine the Vice President of the United States, the, the Prince of Wales, the, um, the Dauphin en France, like a, a, a number two being, being executed by a foreign power? Or, or a foreign terrorist organization? If Mike Pence, if Joe Biden, Dick Cheney, Al Gore, if the vice president of the United States was assassinated, of course there'd be a response. And there was going to be a response. The Austro-Hungarians demanded, demanded uh, the capitulation of Serbia. Um, the Serbians reached out to the Russians for help. Uh, the, and, and I'm going to show you the timeline of the declarations of war 
all hell broke out. During the war, there was mobilization, of course, new weapons, as I alluded to, um, weird old strategies. Um, I'm going to go over the people again, timeline of the battles, how Russia withdraws, which allows for U.S. entry, and how the war concludes. So this plan that the, the Germans had been working on, I mean, people war plan all the time. The United States has, has plans to invade all 191 other countries in the world uh, right now, sitting in desk, desk drawers. The German plans for invading France in World War I is called the, the von Schefflin plan. And essentially, it, it planned out, it game planned, violating the neutrality of Belgium to sneak around some French fortifications and to hit Paris faster and quicker. Um, and when the war broke out, that's exactly what they did. Uh, during the, the mobilization, um, the, the number of civilians who were drafted and the number of women who went into either military or uh, military support positions changed warfare and changed the economics and socialization um, of, of the world as we know it. Um, that there there was uh, recruitment for to get volunteers in addition to those who were drafted. Uh, Uncle Sam uh, came out of this period. This uh, idea of Uncle Sam wants you for to support the American um, preparations for the war. Uh, there were recruitment of of colonial soldiers from across the various European empires, um, and. The number, the raw numbers of people mobilized was was unheard of in the history of warfare. Uh, over 8 million French, over 11 million Germans, almost 12 million Russians, uh, and about 9 million Brits. Okay, And in this new war, they had new weapons. The Germans had, had mastered the seas. They had um, developed this fleet of Unterseeboot. Uh, otherwise known as U-boats, the undersea boats. Um, and they had these U-boats completely throughout the North Atlantic, surrounding um, the home islands of the British Empire and reaching across the Atlantic, in fact. The number of ships sunk by U-boats uh, during the war was amazing. This concept of a Zeppelin, a, a, a blimp that could be used either for surveillance or uh, if buoyed to the land could be made into an obstacle course to protect ground infantry from air bombardment or air surveillance. The airplane itself, the, these um, biplanes that were used primarily sur for surveillance, but if you're going to put a plane up and try to surveil my um, side of the, the battle lines, I'm going to put up a plane and try to shoot your plane down and hence dogfights. Um, and they even used these um, uh, biplanes as early bombers, they would essentially keep the bombs on their laps, screw them on to activate them, hold them out the window and drop them. Not quite accurate. Uh, the idea of an ace um, came about during the war, uh, the, the flying aces of World War One. Of course, the most famous ace was not Snoopy, but the Red Baron. Um, flamethrowers were invented, used a lot in World War One, used in World War II, especially in the in the Pacific Islands. But essentially, I, I love this uh, trend in history and in military technologies: this invention and counterinvention, right? So, um, or strategy and counter strategy. So once 
uh, flamethrowers were invented and utilized, terrified at people. And then they realized, wait, if we just get a sharpshooter and shoot the tank that's on the back of the soldier using the flamethrower, no more tank, no more flamethrower, no, no more scariness. Uh, grenade launchers, grenades themselves, uh, machine guns. Of course, the, these machine guns would be like two or three person machine gun nests, a, uh, a cider, uh, a loader and an operator. Um, the original machine gun uh, was invented in the United States during the Civil War, the Gatlin gun. Um, but then these they developed um, specifically um, Hiram Maximum uh, in, improved upon, if you want to use that word, the Gatlin gun. Um, and so you have these um, these death machines. And um, and and if you if that wasn't enough death, you have poison gas and gas masks. Uh, the gas was usually chlorine gas or mustard gas, which attacked the respiratory organs and often would make people blind as well. And the secret weapon of the war, the these water tanks that what we call nowadays a tank was a secret weapon. They way they hid them and moved them around to try to hide them from uh, German spies. The Brits uh, labeled them water tanks. Uh, water tanks uh, did not do that well in the war, but um, they became the go-to weapon of World War II and beyond. Massive, massive, big Bertha guns uh, from the Krupp's, uh, the arms of Krupp war factories. Those are the, the people, the, the strategies, the weapons and stuff. Let's go back to this timeline. Here's the brief timeline. The assassination happens. Austro-Hungary declares war on Serbia, as I said. Russia, protecting their, their uh, buddies, declares war back on Austro-Hungary. And then the, the back and forth domino chaos, stupidity, tangle of alliances begins. Germany declares war on Russia and France. France, what did I do? I don't know. So France declares war back on Germany. Germany then violates Belgium neutrality, as we said, with the von Scheffen plan. And then because of that, the UK declares war on Germany and vice versa. That's the brief version. The long version is, well, long. The assassination happens on June 28th, 1914. It goes on through June, July, August, September, October, and November. It's not till November that finally Russia declares war on the Ottoman Empire. UK begins its blockade of Germany. Montenegro, okay, declares war on the Ottoman Empire. France and the United Kingdom declare war on the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire declares war on the Allies. So the beginning starts in, in with Serbia and the Germans and the Russians, and it takes until November, ironically, November 11th, um, for the Ottoman Empire to be full swing involved. As I said, there the war is known as the uh, um, as a two theater operation primarily the Western Front and the Eastern Front. The Western Front was primarily the border between France and and Belgium and Germany, and then the Eastern Front is the Russian border with Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, as well as this. I, I used to call it the Southern Front, but usually it just gets lumped in with the Eastern Front, um, the Ottoman Empire. On the war. On the war on the Western Front, it was a war of attrition. Originally, the the Germans thought they were going to just be able to rush right through, rush Blitz, uh, War Krieg, hence Blitzkrieg. Uh, the, that what they mastered later in in Poland, in particular, in World War II, they tried here and they got close. The German army got pretty close to Paris, but were stopped at Marne. 
um, and and not too far from Paris either. And if you know anything about the the first battle of the Marne, which was called the Miracle of the Marne, um, the 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 French were losing, and the word got back to the capital city that they were going to lose, and the Parisian taxicab drivers rounded up all of the the old, uh, the young, the wounded, uh, the sick, and put them into taxicabs, brought them to the front, and that esprit de corps uh, and the added um, manpower helped stop the, the German advance and it became this uh, stagnant war of, of trenches and, and battle lines um, for the rest of the, the war. The, the French general was Ferdinand uh, Foch uh, or Foch, uh, and uh, he, he well, we'll come back and talk to him. Um, as the war went on, there's the, the Battle of the Somme in uh, 1916, over 60,000 British soldiers killed in one day. Over one million human beings killed in five months. They used to say it was some kind of battle. The Battle of Verdun, also in, in 1916. Uh, this is the battle in which uh, Henri Philippe Pétain becomes the commander of Verdun, stops further withdrawals by, by decree, becomes famous, and then throws it all away in World War II. Verdun's actually the longest battle of the entire war. Each side had over a over a half a million casualties. And like I said, a lot of this was just stagnation. Trench warfare, no man's lands, taking turns, charging at each other's trenches, just stupidity. Uh, because the British in particular bled out their colonial troops, in particular the Irish, by sending the, the colonial troops to the front line doing this thing called the slow march. What do you think? I, happens when a slow march goes into a machine gun defensive fortification. Not bueno. And these trenches were disgusting. You're, you're eating, sleeping, urinating, and defecating all in the same spot, and it's raining and snowing. People wound up having, sleeping with the buddy system because the rats were so uh, aggressive that the rats would come out at night and eat soldiers toes off disgusting way to live and a disgusting way to die war in fact is hell we can really take anything neutral and turn it into a weapon can't we barbed wire invented in the in the american west during the cattle kingdom and the range wars uh between um, ranchers and uh herders um and farmers we turn it into a way to prop up people and then machine gun them to death. World War One, because also of, of increasing medical skills, um, had a huge uh, population of war amputees. When I think of war amputees, I think of the American Civil War, World War One, um, and Vietnam in in all uh, in particular. We have enough medicine to to save your life, but not your body. And in, in, in prosthetic technology necessitates. Um, to fill that vacuum. Meanwhile, on the Eastern Front, the Germans actually had it planned out that they were going to go after the French and the Austro-Hungarians were supposed to take uh, um, uh, the Eastern Front. And because of miscommunication, essentially, the Austro-Hungarians didn't show up and Germany had to fight on both sides, which divided their attention and prolonged the war. Um, the Tsar, as I said, we 
became personally involved in the war on the Eastern Front, which allowed again for Rasputin to worm his way into the family and alienate the boyars back in the capital city. But perhaps the, the, what best exemplifies the stupidity of World War I is the Gallipoli campaign. The Western allies, France and Britain, decided they were going to open up a, a trade route, a supply route to the Russians to help them open up the Eastern Front even more. To do this, they would have to go through the Sea of Marmara, the Dardanelles, the Straits, which was owned on both sides by the, the Ottomans. So they decided they were going to land a beachhead at this place called Gallipoli and then and then take out the Turks and allow the, the British Navy through. Well, I, I don't know how they game planned this. The guy in charge is this uh, man. What's his name? Oh, yeah. The Secretary of Navy, Winston Churchill. He They land the, the Allied forces um, in between two pieces of land occupied by the Turks with elevation. The Turks are on elevated land with a machine gun nest, looking down at primarily Australian, but also Kiwi and British soldiers trying to fight uphill on both sides. The, because the land was so was on both sides of the the assaulting amphibious soldiers, the, the big guns of the naval support ships couldn't get close enough really to soften the enemy um, machine gun nests on the hills and the highlands. Just stupidity. It, I don't understand it, unless the goal was to bleed out the colonial troops, as I alluded to. The Ottomans continued to um, uh, exercise control in, in Palestine, a, a, as well as um, parts of the Balkan Peninsula and so forth. But the Brits encouraged this guy, um, uh, T.E. Lawrence, otherwise known as Lawrence of Arabia, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, with the implicit support of the Brits, um, raised up the, this Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire. And this Arab revolt eventually led to the creation of the Arab Kingdom, Saudi Arabia. As I said, there were some uh, battles on the colonial um, fronts. Uh, the British had Sikh soldiers, which uh, were from obviously the Sikh upper inlands between Pakistan and um, modern day India, uh, but they deployed these Sikh soldiers in Africa and throughout the colony. There was fighting uh, between uh, the, these British Sikh soldiers and the black German uh, soldiers in Africa. Um, there's the 3rd British Battalion, Nigerian Brigade, uh, black British soldiers, uh, sub-Saharan African British soldiers. Um, the French even had um, Chinese soldiers uh, in, in their colonial army. And meanwhile, I said I'd come back to Lenin, right? So Lenin was in exile up until October 1917. At this point, it was brilliant. The Germans were like, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Germans helped Lenin get back behind um, the lines and into Russia. He immediately... Um, uh, continues the October Revolution or the November Revolution, depending on your calendar. We know it now as the Russian Revolution, and they topple the government. And immediately, Lenin signs the Treaty of Brest-Litovich, withdrawing the Russians from World War I. Now, finally, the Germans can take their soldiers from the Eastern Front and move them to the Western Front and crush the British and the Germans the, <laughs> crushed the British and the French. The Germans are going to be doing the crushing. But 
this is when the U.S. starts to get involved. What's been going on in the U.S. during this whole thing? Well, there, in the, the election of 1914, um, 1912, actually, a Democrat won. What? A Democrat won? In this period of American history, it would, was all Republican presidents, with the exception of, of Grover Cleveland in the early 1880s. How did Woodrow Wilson, the Democrat from New Jersey, a professor at that, how did he become the president of the United States? Well, the Republicans ran two candidates. Uh, they ran Teddy Roosevelt as a cool moose, um, progressive Republican, and uh, Taft as a traditional Republican. Those two Republicans split the vote, allowing for Woodrow Wilson, interestingly, his name's Thomas, not Woodrow, what's his middle name, um, to become president of the United States. And he had a slogan that he was going to keep us out of the war. Well, then the Lusitania happened. What is the Lusitania, you might ask? It was a British flagged ship that was torpedoed off of the Irish coast. Um, and, and there were 128 Americans on this. However, I, I think what's never talked about enough is the fact that the Lusitania was carrying war materials from the United States to Britain. And also the, the German captain, Walter uh, Schwager, he warned them that he was going to sink them. So it wasn't this surprise act of wanton violence, as some have have uh, indicated. Over a thousand people, however, were killed, including those 128 Americans. And if that wasn't enough, then there's the Zimmerman telegram. What's the Zimmerman telegram, you might ask? Well, the, the German foreign ministry sent a letter to Mexico saying, hey, by the way, wouldn't you love the Mexican session back, that land that you lost from the Mexican-American War? Go ahead. If you want to go take Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona, we got your back. Now, interestingly, this is used as a reason to, for the United States to eventually get into the war, but the Mexicans never acted upon it. So why is this an issue? What drives me insane is that the Lusitania was not an American ship, and it Honestly, it should have been sank, sunk, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't wouldn't the United States or any nation state reserve the right to sink a ship, even if it has civilians on it, if they're bringing war materials to be used against my population? The Zimmerman telegram, a threat, an empty threat, was never acted upon. Those two are not reasons to get involved in the war. And yet the two reasons to get involved in the war are barely spoken about. July 30th, 1916, the Black Tom explosion, and in January 11, 1917, the Kingsland explosion. These are these are terrorist attacks. These are German spies inside of the United States, inside of New Jersey, setting off explosions at war plants. That's a reason to declare war. And on April 6, 1917, the United States did declare war. Woodrow Wilson, Thomas Woodrow Wilson went to Congress asking for a formal declaration to, quote, make the world safe for democracy, end quote. You see, now that the Russians were out of the picture, remember the Brits and the French were pseudo-democracies, constitutional monarchy and a presidential republic. So if the United States joins, it's now three democratic nation states against three autocratic states. Wilson then, therefore, Ergo cum sum laude, he broke his deal. He said, if you elect me president, I'll keep us out of the war. He's now actually getting us into the war. But who's going to fight? Who's going to lead them? How do you just like have an army? The United States didn't keep a standing army until really until the Cold War after World War II. Well, we had a core unit. 
uh, and we actually had just these uh, these green troops just um, um, got a little bit of exercise down in in Mexico. You see, um, Pancho Villa, who was a, a bandit in Mexico, he, he he crossed into the United States and he attacked the town of Columbus, uh, New Mexico, I believe. Or Arizona, I think New Mexico, Columbus, New Mexico, and snuck back into um, Mexico. The United States demanded that the Mexican government turn him over. The Mexican government couldn't find him either. So the United States sent General John Joseph Pershing, Black Jack Pershing, in command of the 8th Brigade to go in and, and find him, the so-called Mexican expedition. And interestingly, his aide to camp during that was a little man I'd like to know no, as George Patton? Are you kidding me? He's, his aide-de-camp becomes one of the best tank commanders in the history of warfare? It's incredible, this genealogy uh, of military minds. John Pershing had experience in the Sioux Wars, the Apache Wars, the Cuban campaign of the, of the uh, Spanish-American War, and as I said already, the Pancho Villa Mexican expedition. He had this hardened group of troops that became the core of the American expeditionary force. The U.S., joins the war. Our, our troops were so fresh because the, uh, our allies, the Brits and the, and the French had been fighting for about three years at this point. Our soldiers were so fresh, we were called the Doughboys. Hopping fresh Doughboys. Americans hit the Western Front. We were landing over 10,000 soldiers a day. Yes. Even just at the Second Battle of Somme, uh, for example, uh, 100,000 Americans died. Americans died for sure, but America had such a higher percentage of, uh, of po civilian population, we, we could take more losses. This, this Allied counteroffensive began on August 1918. We crossed, we the Allies, the Hindenburg Line. It changed the dynamics. As I said, U.S. soldiers were landing at the rate of 10,000 soldiers per day at the point where the Germans had no reserve soldiers left. Ultimately, Bulgaria surrendered. The Ottomans surrender. The Balkans meant that Germany was losing some of its um, oil and food supplies. The Austro-Hungarians surrendered. The people of Germany revolt. There's a coup. The Kaiser flees. Germany is declared a republic. And at 11 o'clock in the morning on the 11th day of the 11th month, 1918, the armistice is signed, the ceasefire. The ceasefire um, was signed at this train in Compiègne. Uh, it was signed in the train. Uh, they wound up making the train into a museum, building a huge statue uh, of Fach or Foch, uh, the French general. And famously, uh, Foch or Fock said, uh, this is not an end of a war. This is just a pause. And sure enough, World War II happens 20 years later. On June 22nd, 1940, Hitler visits the statue and the train before blowing up the countryside nearby with, with just absolute devastation, just destroying everything. The statue was left undisturbed so that the statue could look at the waste baron of France that the Germans created when they ravaged the area in both 1918 and 1940.
the the car, the train car itself, uh, was dynamited and its pieces buried so that the train itself could no longer be used as a symbol of either German power or German aggression. Woodrow Wilson, he, he made this list since he was the guy that changed the dynamics of the war. And he had this list, this idea, 14 points of, of how the war should end to make sure that uh, it would never happen again. And these 14 points were incorporated uh, into the negotiations with the Weimar Republic. Um, the, so the Weimar Republic, the, the Arabs, T.E. Lawrence, the Allied powers, everybody gets together at the, at the Palace of Versailles, specifically in the Hall of Mirrors. They signed this treaty. Um, they demanded reparations from the Germans. They demilitarized the Rhineland and most of Germany. They broke up the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire because they recognized the, the self-determination of, of ethnicities to the, the right to their own country. Weirdly, they also talked about territorial integrity. I don't get how self-determination and, and territorial integrity can, can happen at the same time. But all of these new countries are created. Poland, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Cyprus, Iran, Danzig as it's a free city, Yugoslavia, Hungary, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Albania, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, the Baltic states, and Finland gets its independence at all as well. I, I don't get... If you're saying that everybody has a right to a, their own country, how come Yugoslavia, Yugo meaning all in Slavic, the all Slavias are put together? Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia, Slovenia, uh, Montenegro, right? Like countries that wind up killing each other in, in the, the Balkan Wars of the 1990s and the, the Bosnian genocide. I don't understand how you can say every country has a right to an every ethnicity has a right to a country when the Czechs and the Slovaks are crushed together into this fake country of Czechoslovakia. Fortunately, they peacefully break up in the so-called Velvet Revolution in the 1990s. But why did it have to happen? The Treaty of Versailles also created the first international organization of nations called the League of Nations, which later pushed through the Kellogg-Briand uh, Treaty, ending war. But it was a lopsided treaty. As I say in class all the time, a good treaty means nobody's happy, that both sides get something. A treaty in which one side gets everything means it's not a treaty, it's just a pause in, in the violence and the violence is coming back. But let me ask you, how can you tell that the UK and US and France won World War I? Well, Austro-Hungary and Ottoman Empire don't exist, right? They literally just broke up the countries they, they had been fighting. And during uh, World War and after World War I, uh, since I am working at an art institution, it's interesting to look at how war itself was depicted in the arts. The great German uh, novel, All Quiet on the Western Front, about the reality of war. The, the starkness and, and of the trenches in Northern France, the death toll, the civilian death toll, the gas, the, the, the hospitalization. It's not your grandfather's war, is it? It's no longer the so-called paths to glory as CRW Nevingston depicted in his painting in 1917. This is the stark reality of war and war is hell. War is death. 
And in the aftermath, the flu breaks out. The Spanish flu decimates Europe, North America, and the world. More people died from the flu pandemic than even died in the Great War. And so many people died in the Great War. Almost 9 million people died. Russia had the highest casualties. Then Germany and Austria-Hungary, almost the same number of casualties. France next. And then far lower, but still far too many, Britain, Italy, Ottoman Empire, and the U.S. with the lowest, in fact, uh, death toll of the major belligerents. But then the horror of war continued in the former Ottoman Empire as Turkish nationals, nationals, those three pashas I talked about, overthrew their own government and determined to hold on to the heartland of Anatolia to not lose any more land to the European or new decolonized African nations. They lashed out at the Armenian population because the Armenians were different, a different ethnicity, a different religion. And the Turks committed, not that they would admit it even 100 years later, the Armenian genocide. The Armenian genocide happened during the course of the war and continued towards the end, throughout the end of the war, uh, leading into the, the, um, uh, the Greek Civil War the, the, uh, the, um, and the flight of all Greeks from Western Anatolia back into Greece proper and the diaspora of Armenians who weren't killed into the rump state of Armenia up in northeast of Turkey um, and south into Syria. hundred years later, Turkey still won't take accountability for the Armenian genocide. And Adolf Hitler in World War II even said, who, after all, speaks of the Armenians? The Armenian genocide precipitated the Holocaust. We need to study our history to better understand our history and to prevent history like this from happening again. My name is Tom Keefe, and I'm your babbling professor. Thanks for listening.